All right, welcome back to the Age of Enfrightenment podcast. Uh, we didn't just get done recording a few minutes ago. Um, I'm Dave, and I'm with Nick and Ed. Uh, if you if you last remember, Nick was saying some real fucking racist shit, uh, <laughs> mainly about Jewish people. But we took this time to talk to him and talk you- about how people should. <laughs> be tested on their merit and not, you know, the color of their skin or their sexual orientation. And so now we're back to talk about Lovecraft. You can't say that when there's a two-week delay between episodes and this is wildly out of context now. It took us two (laughs) weeks to get you back to this. Listen, we don't... And this isn't even that good. We're not going to change hearts and minds overnight. Hey, listen, man, we're proud of you. You're doing well. But it's it's an uphill battle. It's a lifelong battle against racism that you yeah. need to fight. Because uh, you're a racist. Get we, some of those tattoos removed. We had fun here. Those tattoos, <laughs> those extremely racist tattoos I got just in the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, but if if you didn't listen to the last episode, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you should probably hang yourself or just go back and listen to the last episode. We're talking about H.P. Lovecraft again. And where last week we were talking about what a fucked up guy he was um, and touching on some of his themes, like his gods and everything. Uh, we're going to spend this episode talking more about the stories that we love from H.P. Lovecraft and then how his influence spread into everything we all love today. So, most diff. So, I think uh, to start off, I know at the end of last episode, we talked a little bit about specific stories. I think we did a good job walking through some of the bigger ones that are the more mainstream known. So, we talked about At the, Ma- at the Mountains of Madness, we talked about Call of Cthulhu, and how significant those are overall. But yeah, we wanted to each take some time to talk about one or two of the, the stories that we love and why. Um, I know for me, it was really difficult to pick just because they're so they're all great but i wanted to try to tie it back to some of the themes that we were going to talk about so before we get into that i think uh theo did you want to talk about the rats in the walls because i know we kind of touched on it a little bit um at the end of the last episode but i didn't know if you wanted to kind of expand on any of of what you were thinking on in that direction yeah man so rats in the walls is one of the ones that's not in the um, Cthulhu mythos like there's Lovecraft has this it's it's referred to as the dream cycle which is all it, it's sort of like the the Marvel movies where it's all in the same universe but you don't necessarily have to watch Guardians of the Galaxy to understand what's going on in Black Panther but if you know the connections when you see them it just makes it better uh, so this one well actually I think technically Rats in the Walls is technically in the dream cycle because at one point it name drops Snarlhotep, but it doesn't go beyond that. Mm-hmm. And whereas a lot of Lovecraft stuff is very sci-fi oriented with, you know, dealing with these horrors from beyond time and space and things like that. Uh, this one is definitely more gothic horror. And it's it's when he does gothic horror, he does it very, very well. It's also it's also where you can really see his Poe influence. Uh, one of the stories that I'm going to talk about it has that same kind of feel, and you can see that he's drawing from his science fiction with a lot of his other stuff, but you can see more Poe and Bierce and, like, Algernon Blackwood in, in these kinds of stories and, like, the language that he uses to describe things for, for sure. 
Right. And in Rats in the Walls, you can you can definitely uh, see the influence of Fall of the House of Usher in it. So the story is about a man from a family, uh, the Delapores, and he's an American and he lives in Boston, but he recently purchased his ancestral home in England. And he talks about how he comes from the, he's, his family name is Delapore, but it used to be the De La Poers, and how it became Americanized. And the, the family is this ancient English family who at one point, one of his ancestors murdered the family and fled to America. And very little is known about this man, what his family did to deserve this, why he fled, but that's what happened. And it talks about how there was this envelope that was handed down for generations um, in America, and they lost, from father to son, and they lost the envelope when their house was burned during the Civil War. When Walter Delapore, his ancestor, came to America, he came to Virginia, and they stayed there until the Civil War. So, like, he talks about how this envelope might have had answers for him, but he never got the chance to read it. And his own son was a soldier during World War One, and he met um, this man, Captain um, oh God, I'm like, Captain um, Norris, who came from the town where their ancestral home was right outside of, and how the De La Pores have this this like people hate them and like you know they're they're almost like this boogeyman family in their folklore because of the the way that they were perceived in this town and um but he still becomes friends with this man captain norris so um his son eventually returns home but he's an invalid because of his injuries in the war he lives for two more years he dies so then his father decides with nothing left he's going to move back to his ancestral home fix it up and he ends up meeting uh, Captain Norris, his son's friend, who helps him to, during the process. And he moves into the house, and at night he hears rats, and, like literally hears rats in the walls. And it's to the point where like he can't sleep, and it's driving him mad. And he eventually, like he recruits Captain Norris. He's like, all right, we're going to figure out where these rats are, and we're going to stop them. And it's very much you get the sense that he has nothing going on in his life which is why he bought this house. He's, you know, all but resigned himself to death because uh, he has no family except for his son, but his son's gone now. Uh, so the, he he obsesses over the, the rats and he never sees any rats, but he hears them behind the wall and he has a cat and the cat would wake up in the middle of the night screaming and like, you know, like scratching at the walls. So like he's convinced that there's something there. So he and Captain Norris go into the basement uh, one night and um well it's not even like a basement it's like a crypt and hey ed what was the cat's name (laughs) let's let's not so (laughs) it was a black cat and hp lovecraft was very racist and let's leave it at that (laughs) right if you want to know i'm sure you can see where we're going with this if you want to look up the name of the cat go for it but think about the most infamous uh mark twain character uh blank jim and then it's 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 similar (laughs) Think about that, yeah, that one word that we're really not allowed to say. That's what he named his cat. Um, the cat would say, hey, man, that's our word, but we can't say it. <laughs> so uh, he and Captain Norris go into the crypt under the house, and they remark how like it's this architecture that had been left over from the Romans when the Romans um, you know, invaded and took over the British Isles. And like he talks about how he's down there, he keeps having these dreams 
and the dreams are of this demonic deformed swine herder and how he has this just like this flock of these horrible monstrous flabby pigs and how they get um swarmed by this just wave of rats and get completely eaten the swine and the swine herder and while he's they're down in the crypts and they they stay the night looking for rats he falls asleep and he has a dream about like this beautiful like feast that's um laid out and prepared in this like this great hall and as he's walking through the hall again he sees the demon swine herder and he realizes that all the food on the table is all human meat and so he keeps having these dreams about this 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 man uh the next night they return to the crypt because they find this altar and the altar was they were able to move the altar and there's a staircase going underground so the next night they return with like a crew they get like this group of like noblemen from the area armed with guns and they're going to go to, like, all right, we're going to see what's down there because at this point they're like, well, there's no rats, but there's something happening here. Right. Uh, so they go down the staircase and one of the men is an archaeologist and he remarks about how just looking at the staircase, he says, this is beyond ancient. And from the way that it was made, this would have been made coming from underground going up. And they finally this descend the staircase and into an underground cavern where they find this ruined city. And among the city is just heaps and heaps of bones. And upon inspecting the bones, they find out that they're almost human, but not quite. And they would have been basically the, the human cattle that Dave described in the last episode when he was talking about the mound. So there was these people that were being raised but were so they were so brutalized and kept underground for so long that they just it was a complete different evolutionary path where they learned to walk on all fours and he describes the skulls their skulls as being slightly more human than a gorilla but still not a human skull right they're they're mole people essentially exactly and the conclusion that he comes to is that his family, the the reason that they were so reviled in the community was that they knew about this and they were raising these cattle, these this human cattle, and they were eating them. His ancestor, Walter, who fled and murdered the family, that's why, because he found out that the rest of his family was doing this and had to put an end to it. And this knowledge drives the man insane. And he says he comes to eating one of the men in his group, just like on all fours, tearing at him with his teeth and hands. And it ends with him in an insane asylum. But he keeps saying, it wasn't me, it was the rats. Right. And the reason this story sticks out for me, not just because it's, you know, well, because it's not part of the dream cycle, it, it exists on its own, and it's like its own entity. And Lovecraft doesn't, for all of his horrific language, never gets very graphic but this story gets graphic when it's talking about you know just like the bodies being torn apart and people being eaten and it's just very very disturbing and i i also talked in the last episode about how this is one where you kind of see you know the cracks forming in his weird xenophobic views and like it's an almost progressive story like it's this this man from this wealthy family who and it talk throughout the story like it talks about how like when he returned to the town like he couldn't get people to work on his house because mm. nobody you know nobody liked his family and they all thought the house was haunted and like one of the things he says is that the 
the people in the town believe the, the exact words were they believe it to be a haunt for spirits and werewolves. And what he says is like he doesn't he thinks they don't want him to fix up the house because that's their excuse for bad stuff happening is this place. So it's almost right. like, well, they're blaming it on the rich people. And, you know, once he discovers that, like, well, his family was historically awful, it drives him insane. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does echo a lot with his upbringing. And it's funny because you said it's almost like progressive. But I wonder if the other take on that, and I see this with a lot of his stories, is even the association with, like, people that you would subjugate. So this happens in in the story that I'll talk about, too, in, in a few, but... It, by like subjugating people that you see lesser or exterminating them, you're doomed to like have that fate come back to you. And you could almost read it as like a segregationist thing of like, let's not even deal with each other because it's, it's the blood guilt. And it's like, we'll get our come up. It's like, I would almost imagine that he'd be the kind of guy who wouldn't want to own a slave, but he would just want to have zero contact with black people or other races in general. Cause it's like, this is what happens. Like, if you own people or if you eat people or you raise people as cattle, like these bad things happen. I almost wonder if it, if it reinforces, and I guess that's up for debate, some of his beliefs as opposed to like a progression in his mind. Okay. So I agree with you. The protagonist of the story definitely thought of himself as a very progressive guy and he doesn't have a first name. He's just Mr. Delapore. Um, Mm. But like he definitely in the context of the story thought of himself as a very progressive guy. Uh, but I think what it comes from is the once he realizes that this was his legacy, his family legacy, mm-hmm. were cannibals that had li- really literally reduced other humans to farm animals. That was what eventually broke him. So right, it was the I, knowledge of that. Yeah, right. The knowledge of that 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 cruelty and that that just blatant disregard for human life. But then at the same time, it's he still has that within him. So because right. he eats, he eats his companion, but he still winds up in the mental institution. And it's like such a it's such a natural predatory thing for him that he doesn't even recall like starting to do it. I think yeah. what really strikes me about that story among so many of his stories, and I'm glad that you picked it, is it feels more cinematic, whereas a lot of his stuff I feel like feels literary because so much of it is like ineffable. It's like horror that you can't even imagine or things that are sort of heady. This is much more intimate and closely related to humanity. So mm-hmm. it, it amazes me that there's never been a really great, like, I feel like you could make this movie now. Like, I feel like a 24 could make a rats in the walls movie. That is like phenomenal. Just a mm-hmm. really chilling, small story that like takes place in this very close quarters, as opposed to the expansive cosmic horror that, that he normally does that I think is challenging for people to turn into film. Now that I think about it, and this goes back to something you said, you guys were both talking about the last episode, the idea of blood guilt and how you brought that up, David, Nick, you said like the idea that maybe that was a concern of his knowing that his parents were both, you know, went insane that maybe this was something that like ate at him and something like that. And that's part of the story. The, the rats that he heard at night, they, you, they never it's never confirmed if they're actually real and a lot of people interpret it as that was just like his madness beginning to manifest itself right and i think with that in mind 
I, I, I think you're right. I think Lovecraft was definitely afraid about going insane himself. Yeah, right. And tie and tying back to a to an older episode when we talked about cannibalism, that's actually one of, like a physical feature is that it will like rot oh, your brain. Yeah. Like eating meat from your own species can drive you actually like physically insane. So I think there's a lot of things tied together in here that that he sort of knew about or was concerned about or worried about. And he sort of like threw it all into one pot. Yeah. I love it when I learn new stuff on this show. <laughs> well, I got one also from the dream cycle that hits on all of the big points of his. It's one of my favorite stories. We're going to get some racism in there. We're going to get some fear of women in there. It's going to be great. Um, it's called <laughs> Medusa's Coil. And oh, it's, I love that one. Yeah, it's a longer one. If you remember, Ed, I made you while we were hanging out, just sit down and read the whole thing. Yeah, um, and it took like an hour, and you just like played Bioshock or something. I'm yeah. just like reading on Dave's your a lot of fun to hang out with, guys. That's that's what we're yeah. trying to say. <laughs> well, no, I read the whole fucking thing because it was like <laughs> engrossing. Medusa's Coil is like another like gothic horror that has a really nice setup because it's a very cliched hack setup where a guy who never has a name in the story is driving around in New England and his car breaks down he can tell it's about to rain and you know, this is turn of the century. So I'm assuming rain was just fire. Uh, you couldn't be out in it. So he goes <laughs> to a farmhouse that he comes upon on the road. And there is an old man named Antoine de Russie who, you know, the, the farm is like pretty dilapidated and it's all dark and shitty looking. And, you know, the guy's pretty much like a hermit. He's kind of weird looking. He invites him in, tells him he can spend the night until the rain passes, and then they can take a look at his car. And this guy begins telling him the story of the house. And he basically explains that he it's a plantation that he inherited from his grandparents. And he had a son uh, named Dennis. And Ugh, this, this whole thing Dennis. takes place <laughs> in the time when H.P. Lovecraft was prevalent around like 1916 basically his son dennis uh was sent to paris uh for schooling and while there he met an artist named frank marsh and they became very involved in the occult now i always imagine in that story it was the same level of involvement that we all had in college where we were just kind of interested in the occult but they just took it a step further because there was an actual cult to join and Dennis becomes obsessed with the cult leader, who is this woman named Marceline, who has this long, beautiful black hair and is kind of like swarthy and a little bit Egyptian looking. And it's just heralded as this like great, beautiful, more than human sex goddess almost. Needless to it. say, Dennis marries her. And brings her back to the plantation where the story is taking place. You know, they're getting on with their life, but, you know, the animals at the place don't like Marceline. The staff has, like, a weird obsession with her. And it's just, like, something about her doesn't feel right. The father, the one who's narrating the story, feels, like, a little odd about her. It was later in the story that Frank Marsh, the artist that uh, Dennis had befriended over in Paris, comes to stay with them because he's a very bad alcoholic. Uh, and he basically comes to, like, dry out and get healthy again. And he asks Dennis if he can paint Marceline. 
and he says, uh, I, mes- I must paint her, Denny, must paint that hair, and you won't regret. There's something more than mortal about that hair, something more than beautiful. So he basically begins painting Marceline, and the father... The vampire and the queen. One na- anyway, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> the, one na- the one narrating realizes that at some point his son might become jealous uh, because, you know, Frank is this, like, handsome like urbane charming artist uh that's painting probably a nude of his wife uh so he you you know his response to that is to send his son away on business so he won't get jealous as this happens frank the artist is painting marceline over a long period of time and dennis does eventually get jealous and come back and comes back and confronts him it's at this time that the painting, although not completely done, is revealed to Dennis. And what he sees is so horrible that he kills Marceline. And he dies in the process of this. The artist dies. There's like some weird circumstances around it. But the story ends with the narrator, the father, who's now alone, telling this traveler this unnamed traveler that basically he put all the bodies in the basement and basically just put them into quick lime pits and has just been waiting for them to completely just yeah disappear yeah disintegrate to nothing oh my god Uh, now he asked the traveler do you want to see the painting i have it upstairs (laughs) they go upstairs and he shows it to him and i'm just gonna quote directly It was, as the old man had said, a vaulted, columned hell of mungled black masses and witches' Sabbath, and what perfect pletion could have added to it beyond my power to guess. The utmost horror of all, of course, was Marceline, and as I saw the bloated, discolored flesh, I formed the odd fancy that perhaps the figure on on the canvas had some obscure occult linkage with the figure which lay in a quip climb pit under the cellar floor. Surpassing all in horror was the streaming black hair, which covered the rotting body, but which was itself not even slightly decayed. All I had heard of it was amply verified. It was nothing human, this ropey, sinuous, half-oily, half-crinkly flood of serpent darkness. Vile, independent life proclaimed itself at every unnatural twist and convulsion, and the suggestion of numberless reptilian heads at the outturned ends was far too marked to be an illusionary or accidental. So basically, this artist saw what Marceline actually was. She was this horrible, not elder god, but there's connections to Narlahotep, mm. uh, like the Egyptian pharaoh god thing. I know they name drop Cthulhu at some they point. They do in that name story. drop Cthulhu because what she's standing in front of is Relar, basically. Mm. Uh, she's she's standing uh, in front of these like Cyclopean ruins in, in Cthulhu's city, right? The basically, stone yeah. city with all yeah. And crazy. she's mega evil, <laughs> and she's immortal, uh, which is so now, hot. Yeah. <laughs> now, th- Dennis seeing. The painting, whatever spell Marceline had on them was broken and he was actually able to see her as she was in the painting and that's why he killed her. However, it's revealed that like when he killed her, her hair more or less like strangled him and 
the artist. Now, upon seeing this, the unnamed protagonist of the story pulls out his pistol and shoots the painting. Like, just because it's such an abomination. Because you have to understand, it's not just the painting itself. Her hair in the painting is moving. Like, the painting is very much alive. This was also a time when people went to galleries for fun, and if you didn't like a painting, it was customary to shoot it with your with your revolver. It was That's the why idea. I'm not allowed back into the Philadelphia art. <laughs> I shot too many paintings. That something is so horrible that it can't be left intact. And again, it's very creepy because even in the painting, in this still life painting, the hair is moving slightly. Right. Like it's implied that the painting might be alive. Right. It's like Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, exactly. It's Vigo! (laughs) You're like the buzzing of flies. The Upper West Side? When he does this, the old man freaks out and screams that basically he's broken the only bond holding her back. Ooh. And they start frantically running for the front door. In the process, he knocks over a candle and the house catches fire. And as he's fleeing, he hears something underneath the cellar, like, go bump, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, so basically by destroying that painting, he's freed Marceline. And then it ends in, like, a very cliched way of uh, basically he gets out of the house and tells somebody. And someone's like, oh, that house has been burned down for five or six years. <laughs> like... Uh, which is the only part I don't like, but yeah, that seems kind of hacky for what the kind of yeah. story that it is. Yeah. Or may- maybe that's the first time anyone did that. I don't know. And now it's hacky. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> you know that you see Lovecraft's fear of women in this because he was very adverse to sex. We don't have enough space on the internet to talk about his psychosexual problems. <laughs> no, we uh, sure don't. But if that if that is a rabbit hole you are interested in, there is more than enough material. Yeah, I mean, just think just think about all of his fear of other human beings in general matched up with like his hangups about his mom and then just put all of that into like his sexual repression and you've got a cocktail of of weirdness and now one of the last lines describing marceline in the painting oh god i love this was um for though in deceitfully slightly proportion marceline was a negress which is it's kind of a weird tack on it's like she's black well, like, it's and yeah, it's sort of like she's he's, a hidden black person. It's sort of like, like he's saying, "Ah, see, if we just knew that ahead of time, we wouldn't have gotten yeah. in any of this trouble." Which no, well, he meant he meant for that line to be like his mic drop, right? Like, yeah, and yeah. you know, maybe at the time it was, but like I remember when I read this a couple years ago, I got to that, and that was just like, okay, that's just that's just kind of silly. That's just like racism. it's too it's too silly to be offensive. Yeah. And then it was changed when it released in 1944. It was changed to, though in deceitfully slight proportion, Marceline was a loathsome, bestial thing, and her forebears had come from Africa. So even in that's 1944, they were like... <laughs> yeah, even, no, that's just more. Even in 1944, they were like, we got to tone that down a little bit. But they, <laughs> like, It's like in toning it down, though, they made it so much more degrading. Because at least you yeah, can make yeah. the argument that he's like he doesn't mean this, but you can make the argument it's like, well, maybe he's just stating a fact. Oh, and also she's black. Whereas adding the loathsome bestial thing from Africa is just so much worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. basically, this hits all the points with Lovecraft. Um, it's a woman deceiving a man, specifically through like sex right. and her beauty and everything, and then you know just. Uh, 
there, there's a lot of like calling people savages in HP Lovecraft's work. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea that Africa being like the dark continent, like where these kinds of things take place to the point where, you know, I like to think that this person in this story was supposed to be uh, basically like a witch, like somebody who sure. had come into contact with Narla Hotep. More of a and, more of a succubus character as opposed to, oh, she's just a black lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, what a mess you get everyone into, Howard. Yeah. That's a really cool story. I haven't read that one. That's uh, oh, God, it's that's actually, one of my favorites. Despite the racism, it's actually one of the better ones. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, cool. So, I actually have one from the Dream Cycle as well. I went back and forth on what stories I wanted to talk about. I toyed with the idea of talking about Color Out of Space just because that was my intro to Lovecraft, but... Actually, given all the things we've talked about, what I came back to was The Doom That Came to Sarnath. Um, It's a shorter story. I really like it for a few reasons. One being that it's kind of a departure in narrative. So in a lot of his stories, it's modern day people sort of discovering ancient things. And it's definitely got an ancient feel, but it sort of just kicks right off. And and it feels more like a fable than uh than white scholarly guy stumbles upon whatever like there's definitely an element to that but it almost has more of like a sumerian or hyperborean kind of vibe that was really big then like one of his contemporaries was robert howard who wrote the conan stories and it feels more like that like this ancient human civilization and their decadence it's it's got sort of a biblical feel to it so in the story, it uh, it starts out by talking about this land called Sarnath, which was like this beautiful city that had all of the wonders of the world all in one place. So it's kind of like, think about Babylon um, or like the Hanging Gardens, just something magnificent that people would travel from miles around to see. And the humans that, that built that city built it right sort of on top of the location of a former city called Ib. And that that existed on this lake in sort of like uh, Arabia slash Egypt kind of area. And for millennia before that, like pre-10,000 years ago, even further back, there were these creatures there that were in the way they were described were very similar to the deep ones, sort of amphibious, bulging eyes, kind of like moved low to the ground, scaly. And they believed in this god um, called uh, Bakrog. And who was like sort of a lizard god of, of the region. And the one thing that that plays a key role is this ancient artifact, which is like a single, it's like a carving of the deity out of a single piece of ivory. So like the question was, how do you even get a piece of ivory that big? So it's got a feeling of like ancient biology there too, that there was ever an elephant like animal enough for like this horn of this massive size. So that was sort of their, their deity. I think what's interesting about this story is it has a lot of those elements of don't go fucking around with subjugating or destroying other races. Like just leave them alone because they're monsters that you can't even comprehend. Ultimately what happens is the, the people of Sarnath start to build their city and they detest the frog like people that live in Ib and pretty much just because of how they look. I mean, it's very like they were beasts. They had, they had like inflated gross lips and all of these things that you see in a lot of his his writing. 
and they killed them all. They they destroyed them and they they flung them into the great lake that it was built on. In like literally thousands of years that passed, or I think it was a thousand exactly, they would have this celebration in Sarnath where every year they would celebrate the day that they cast all of the Ib creatures into the lake and destroyed them. And there was a, in the time that it had happened when they were celebrating it back when they first got rid of them, there was a high priest who was sort of doing an infernal ritual in the sense of like sort of praising their conquest of the people of Ib. And they found him the next day dead by the statue, the ivory statue, and he had scrolled doom across it. So very like harbinger of something bad to come. And all of the high priests ever since him were very nervous about the festival. But after a long amount of time, it became kind of a joke. So I kind of think about like, uh, places like Salem now where it just becomes uh, your history becomes sort of a tourist attraction. So people would come from all over for this festival where they would celebrate the destruction of Ib and it, princes from other lands would set up tents and it was just this big orgy, just this crazy party all the time. And even the high priests were kind of didn't really care anymore. It was that sort of uh, blood guilt had kind of waned and people thought of it as just like this sort of fancy story and ultimately what happens is during the celebration there starts to be like all of this sound and all of these things that were like coming from the outset of the city walls and people started to flee in fear and the people inside the city didn't know what was happening and ultimately a horde of these ib creatures sort of descend upon them and just destroy the city bringing on doom to sarnath and what is really fascinating to me is it's got this biblical kind of tone to it where it's like you you brought this on yourselves and i think it's another weird glimpse into his i i guess his like difficulty with the things that he felt because what we have essentially are are human beings kind of representing the white race sort of conquesting he talks about the wars that they went on and They've kind of not lived correctly. They destroyed this entire people, stole their land, and then proceeded to just wage war and steal things and just be sort of decadent people. And they paid the ultimate price when all of these monsters came back and descended from the lake. They said that the lake was like glowing with light and this otherworldly presence. And they all come down. And it's kind of triumphant. For the lizard people, because at the end there's no uh, there's no evidence left of Sarnath other than the myth and the fact that that lake is inhabited by these creatures that look very much like the lizard god Bakrog. So it almost feels like a setting things back on the right course kind of story. Like nature came in and was like, this place has become too much. It's become like the city of Babylon that has sinned and has destroyed the world before it. And it's that cycle thing that you see in a lot of Lovecraft where like the cycle of nature has come to reclaim in the most horrific way possible by literally like these creatures slaughtering everyone inside. And it's referred to in some of the other stories. And there's another story that I think ties in really well with it called The Nameless City, which has similarities to At the Mountains of Madness. But ultimately it's another one too where we see these carvings in caves where there was an ancient race of lizard-like people 
that fought the humans and won, but were eventually driven to go away. And it's this theme that shows up in Lovecraft where there's, there's like true owners of the earth that are bubbling just below the surface. And we just think that we own it. And at any moment they can come back up and just reclaim what was theirs, which I, I love. And it feels like, it feels like a nice, neat little biblical fable in the Lovecraft mythos of, of what happens when you get too big for your britches, which I think is a thing that he felt uh, all the time of like, yeah, you can learn all you want. You can conquest, you can destroy things, but the force of nature is going to come and, and show you how insignificant you are. So I always really, I just love that one. And it's got everything too, from like the ties to the Arabian desert to like Egyptian myth to lost cities. It has kind of an Atlantis kind of vibe to it. So I just think it's a really good, like, quintessential story for people to, to read. Like, one of those early foundational stories to read of his. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a really good one. There's something, another interesting thing, too, and I know we're going to transition into um, into uh, references that have been made. There's a Mike Mignola Batman story back before he was... Oh, Doom that came to yeah, Gotham. Yeah, so that was another thing that made me think about this one, too, where they use the same one, so... This is taking something as mainstream as Batman and Mike Mignola, who later after that created Hellboy. I think it was after that. Um, really applying his love for Lovecraftian lore and being like, well, if I'm going to work on these comic books, they're going to be super Lovecraftian and weird. And it's going to be basically the doom that came to Gotham is the story of, of Sarnath, but with Batman characters, <clears throat> which is one of his many influences that we can talk about. So if there, there's one that we talked about in the last episode and is really, really, really important to Lovecraft's influence um, more than any other story, I think, uh, one called At the Mountains of Madness, which is, of all of his stories, is the one that you see echoes of the most in pop culture today. So who wants to we're really quick? We're gonna cover yeah. that just so you have like a basis so, of it. Who wants to who wants to start just, off on that one? Yeah, just to kick it off. So it's one of only three what would be considered novellas. So he was mostly a short story writer. This is one of his longer form stories, and it stems greatly from his fascination with a lot of people's fascination at the time with the Antarctic continent, because in the time when he was a young lad. Uh, it was the only continent that was really largely completely undiscovered and had there. I mean, maps at the time just had huge chunks of blank space where they said, we literally don't know what's here. And that fear of the unknown translated really well for him. So this was his story of dealing with that. And it's also draws a lot of inspiration from the Edgar Allan Poe only novel that he did. Um, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. So, we can get into all the details, but that's sort of the setup for why yeah. he wanted to write an almost an entire like book length story about this as opposed to a short story. But it kicks off with a group of explorers and geologists who are taking single prop airplanes into Antarctica to basically use a new type of drilling equipment to do geological data and pick it up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's really cool about this is that it, it's, um, a secondhand account. So you're being told this after the fact by one of the men who was on the mission. And uh, they, so they arrive in Antarctica and they're drilling and they want to get these like core samples, um, you know, from, from like the, uh, the, the tundra and they start finding like fossils and they don't understand like why there's fossils here because 
from all everything they they know about the area there shouldn't have been anything living here and they right. find these really preserved things that are you find out kind of like pop up in lovecraft stories they're referred to as elder things but they're like these strange almost like you describe them as being more like vegetable or plant than like more closely related to vegetables than to humans like these completely unhuman things that have like these long tubular bodies and like five like eyeball stalks like a slug would have and like strange tentacles coming out of them and wings and they're like they they're just dumbfounded by them and um they keep digging up these bodies and then one day they just disappear um like they go to sleep and the next day the bodies are just gone and well, so I think it's like six of them are still there. The ones that they that were broken were like actual corpses, but then like eight of them disappeared overnight or something like that. Because they had they, they had found like six, they had found fourteen, and I think six of them were like buried in under mm-hmm. snow when they came, and they're like, what happened to the other eight? Okay, yeah, um, and they decide some of the men decide to just keep pressing on with their trip because they're trying to make it to like this mountain range, and um, they eventually they send. Um, somebody in the plane to fly overhead and the plane just doesn't come back and they they're trying to figure out what happened so two of the men eventually go into they they climb the mountain and once they get there they discover it's not actually a mountain range the reason it's so big is that because it's a city yeah the one thing that they say when when the one character first gets there and he's radioing back is he's like Guys, I found mountains, and they're bigger than the Himalayas. And that's the discovery that they're relaying back to, the, to basically, the cities, is they're sending back, like, we found a, uh, a mountain that's way taller than Mount Everest. This is huge. So it's all set in these, like, very real discoveries before they realize it's anything deeper than just a mountain full of, like, strange characters that are, that are bigger than any mountain on Earth yet, yet known. And as they're exploring the cities, the first thing that kind of takes them by surprise, and it's it really doesn't come up again, but it's just this r- random terrifying occurrence, but it sticks with me as one of my favorite things Lovecraft's ever written, is they come across penguins. But the penguins are like nine feet tall, and it looks like they're they're blind and like completely white and looks like they've grown underground and just are like completely deformed and terrifying. And they actually, in the Doom that came to Gotham, they pop up because, like, they try to pepper in, like, some... Because of the penguin, yeah. Um, (laughs) But, like, they pass just, like, a herd of penguins, and the penguins just don't pay attention to them. But that's, like, their first inclination that something here is not right. So they're able to make it into, like, this, this building, and they... On the wall is, like, painting. So they're able to, like... Um figure out the story of what happened to the city from the paintings on the wall. And they realize that these, the bodies that they've been digging up, the elder things were a race of aliens and they had come to earth in prehistoric time before man had evolved from, you know, primates. And when they came to earth, there was already another force on earth that was Cthulhu. And they had a war against Cthulhu that lasted for generations and the what finally happened was the shifting of the continents is what caused Cthulhu to Cthulhu City to sink into the ocean, and so they were sticking around to, you know, just in case Cthulhu ever comes back. But in their city, the the reason that the the elder things were able to, you know, be so scientifically advanced 
was that they had this race of slaves called the Shoggoths. And the Shoggoths are described as these mindless, gelatinous blobs that just, like, have a mass of eyes and tentacles and aren't really, really anything. They're just these, like, blobby figures, but they could get the Shoggoths to, to work for them, to build and to farm and do all the things that they didn't want to. And eventually what happened was the Shoggoths rose up and killed all of the Elder Things because they had made them, like, too powerful and they had gotten out of control. And um, as the men leave, the, they, they understand the story now. They leave, like, the building that they're in. They go through other tunnels and they finally find a Shoggoth that's still alive. And that's like, oh, that's fucking it. And they break out and they, I think it's, I don't remember if they came in the plane or they found the original plane, but they escape in a plane. Yeah, just t- just the two. It's the um, Dan Forth, the assistant, and the and, narrator. And Peabody, I think. Yeah. I think Peabody yeah. is the narrator. And um, yeah, and as they're leaving in the plane, they get a view of the whole city from overhead. And Dan Forth, his partner, he sees something from looking at the city that just breaks his mind, and he just becomes like a, 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 a like a giggling lunatic from that point on. But they escape. And at the end, you find out that the reason that Peabody is telling this story is because another expedition is being planned to this area to go over to get the core samples to figure out what happened and, um, you know, pick up where the last men left off. And he is absolutely terrified of them finding this city. He's basically trying to convince humanity, don't go back to this part of Antarctica. It's not worth it. It's not worth anything you could possibly learn because it's so dangerous. One thing that I think is interesting, and this will transition as well, I think, into influences, is the way that we learn that history is through, like, base relief carvings and and paintings and, like, the artwork that, like, tells the story of what happened to, to these creatures. And that has, I think, become a really big trope in a lot of this kind of sci-fi to help expose the plot without having to do, like, flashbacks. And it also allows the narrator's imagination to fill in some of the blanks and one place where I think we see that really well in recent history is in uh, Prometheus, the prequel to Alien, where they find these ancient pyramids. And even though there are actual monsters in the movie, a lot of the horror comes from like wondering what happened to these people. There was this whole race of the people called that that the scientists call the engineers that essentially are uh, thought to have made us. And the horror a lot comes from, like, they go to an alien planet and they see structures and they're like, why is this here? There shouldn't be straight lines on a planet that has never had life on it. And we see that play through a lot of pop culture. And a lot of that comes from At the Mountains of Madness, where they talk about, well, they're mountains, but they have these weird, like, cubic shapes attached to them. And they're very cylindrical and, like, they don't look like any other mountains. So a lot of the horror just comes from the sense of, like, this shouldn't be here. What what happened? And then putting the pieces together for something that happened millennia before, as opposed to... Because really, there's just the one monster that they encounter. It's just the one Shoggoth. But the true horror comes from, like, the implication of these powers living on Earth and, and this great war that happened for, you know, eons in the past. Right. There was those people who were so much more advanced than we are and maybe than we can ever be, but they still fucked up and they're gone now. Right. So, so what this... chance do we have? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah so and that, you... I think that plays really well with like, like the engineers in the, in the prequels that have come out for Alien, they're 
there's this thought of this benevolent thing. Like, well, if they were so smart, they must have had their acts together. And as we kind of find out about the engineers, no, they were kind of like cruelly harvesting humanity and there isn't a deeper purpose for us. That's a very Lovecraftian uh, notion that if you go searching for answers, you're not going to find God. You're not going to find the guy who's like, I made you in my image and you're wonderful and I love you. It's going to be much more... uh, biologically horrifying and and disappointing in the end it's very bleak i think yeah prometheus it's incredibly prometheus is the reason that at least for the next 20 years we're not going to have a straight up in the mountains of madness uh movie adaptation because guillermo del toro has wanted to do that specifically that story forever and like when like prometheus came out he had kind of gotten the ball rolling and like tom cruise was going to star in it and Prometheus came out, and it's, like, very much the same story. And I really right. dig Prometheus. And Prometheus did okay, but I don't think, like, it did as well as anybody wanted it to do. Well, and I think yeah. it, it touches on something that I feel like, for whatever reason, has happened over the decades, where we have a lot of Lovecraftian-adjacent good sci-fi, but have yet to have a really great, true Lovecraftian story put to film. And, you know, with things like The Thing and Alien and stuff that, like, is on the fringes but isn't quite there. Yeah, it's because, for some reason, Lovecraftian movies are super polarizing. Yeah. Like, people either love them or hate them, and especially in this in this era where like most studios studios will only make tentpole movies. It's really hard to get a Lovecraft picture off the ground. I think I feel like a 24 could do it, but it would be an uphill battle. There's been some very small budget ones that have done well, like um, probably like 10 years ago at this point, but there was like a black and white called Cthulhu movie. That was really cool. That Um, was really good. Actually, Yeah, that was really dope. I, there's, uh, a short horror film about Innsmouth that I sent, found recently. I'll have to send you guys a link because it was actually really cool. But it was also only like 10 minutes long. Uh, there's also a full-length Shadow Over Innsmouth movie that was made in the late 80s. It's, eh, it's <laughs> okay. It's it's honestly, it follows the story pretty yeah. well, but yeah, it's it's okay. I think there's a lot of it's okays out there. I, yeah. I think it's very difficult to do well. And I, I always kind of go back to, I think that Lovecraft, so much of the power of his stories happens in the imagination. And the second you like create it visually, it almost loses a little of its horror because some of the horror comes from the ineffable quality of these monsters. And like, I feel like you're never going to be able to fabricate through CGI or even real sculpture, something that has as much menace to it as just mm-hmm. thinking about the sheer impossibility of, of creatures like the old gods and, and all of these different things. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, uh, it's, it's a big movie right now. It, it is a Lovecraftian God. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, it is all like, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spoil too much because there's a second it movie coming out and not everyone has read the book, but like it, you will find out is a Lovecraft God like yeah per se <laughs> uh, uh, Lovecraft was a ginormous influence on Stephen King so you can definitely see that with Pennywise uh, with Randall Flagg being very similar to Noral Hotep like I think in the stand they actually refer to him as Noral Hotep at one point it's yeah um, they do yeah one of the characters Glenn Glenn is talking about like the different like forms he's shown up over history and they say Noral Hotep um but 
Uh, I like there's one in particular in the short story collection um, Night Shift called Jerusalem's Lot, and it's yep. yeah, it's it's like a direct prequel to Salem's Lot, and it's like it's supposed to be like an explanation of why the town is so fucked up. But like this was, and like Stephen King even says it like in his introduction is like this is me doing my best to emulate Lovecraft, right. and he does this like amazing Lovecraft style story. Um, yeah, but like him. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. That that's one of my favorites by him. Uh, but yeah, Guillermo del Toro still wants to do in the Mountains of Madness, and there actually is since like he just won an Oscar for The Shape of Water. That's kind of like getting some buzz now. It's like, well, maybe we should let him do it. You know, the dude knows what right. he's doing. But you can definitely see, especially like since he, in the Hellboy movies, uh, the influence Lovecraft has had on him. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, he's made a universe and an aesthetic. Oh yeah, yeah, and like and with with Hellboy movies, I mean. If you like those movies, even if you don't read the comics, you'll love Lovecraft because both Guillermo and Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy, are two of the highest profile Lovecraft fanboys working today. So, you know, the two of them got together and were like, we want to make a great Lovecraftian comic book movie. So much of the Hellboy universe is built around the ideas that Lovecraft put forth, like Hellboy himself, while being from somewhat the traditional hell that we think about he's also very closely related to this idea of elder gods um of sort of cosmic beings beyond our comprehension and even the aesthetics of the very squid like octopus like creatures that he fights there's in plague of frogs there's a lot of things that feel very much like the deep ones like he he's a he's i think very much a successor to lovecraft and the fact that what lovecraft did was mine all of the things he loved about sci-fi and created something new and i think mike mignola did that a lot with hellboy and created an equally expansive universe that feels tied together and it's cool because i think with lovecraft stories and i know stephen king does this uh you can take all these different stories that feel very different, like a killer clown and, and, you know, something like dark tower, like all these things that feel like they're in different worlds, but having an underlying current of Lovecraftian mythos allows them to feel cohesive. And that, and and Mike Mignola does the same thing. I know Neil Gaiman does the same thing with a lot of his work and has also written, uh, very clearly Lovecraftian stories that where he's just taking the characters and pushing them a little further. He did, uh, a few years ago, he did a study in Emerald, which is oh, a so cross. Cool. It's such a good yeah. story, and it's a crossover of Lovecraft and Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, and they feel like they fit really well together because the the themes in them like just meld somehow. Yeah. Now, if you're just getting in to Lovecraft, uh, it can be quite fucking daunting because he was a very prolific writer. However, you can get, like, collections of his work. And I would say the ones to start with are The Call of Cthulhu and Other Weird Tales. Then uh, there's another one called The Horror in the Museum, which is a collection of his works. But I understand, because when I first got into Lovecraft, uh, he has over 100 stories. And just like any writer who's very prolific, some of them are amazing. Some of them are okay, and some are fucking just clunkers. Yeah, and um, you know um, what? You can find all of his stories on uh, the book called The Internet for zero dollars because Homeboy <laughs> didn't know shit about copywriting. Yeah. Yeah, but see, this is the problem. Uh, 
unless you have somebody to kind of curate those tales, then it can be really hard to digest. Because if you just jump into like... Not for me. I'm really smart. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, I will say it does help to have a curated uh, edition. Like uh, my first Lovecraft that I bought was a a bunch of short stories where the flagship story was uh, Color Out of Space, but then there was maybe 12 others. And it's curated so that there's like similar themes. So that's like one way in. And then my first big collection was just called Necronomicon. And it's like almost all of his works, but I think some things are missing. Night Gaunts is like the first story, just the poem. Um, yeah. And then Theo, you had actually bought Lisa, uh, uh, one of like the Barnes and Noble collections. And that's what I used to reference a lot of the stuff that I talked about in here because it has really nice forewords mm-hmm. before each of the stories um, that helps you know, okay, if I'm going to read this, it has a direct tie into Mounds of Madness. So maybe I read that next. So I think it, it yeah. does help to, like Dave said, to have that curated eye so you can jump from one thing into the other without feeling like these are all just random stories. What do they have to do? What do they have to no, do it, it, no, it, it, I, I kid. It absolutely does help to get well, like one of the, yeah. the, the books. Uh, the first one I got actually was really cool because it didn't have any of the really big ones in it. Like it didn't have Cthulhu. It didn't have Mountains of Madness or Innsmouth or anything like that. But it did have um, Reanimator, which I love. Um, that's where I first read Rats in the Walls. Um hypnos and beyond the walls of sleep and kind of like the like the non like a, it had like one or two of the dream cycle ones but really yeah, wasn't I think focused that shadows of death okay that might be like yeah that. and yeah. that one was really good because that was you know it's almost like getting like the b-sides right and yeah. like stuff you wouldn't appreciate otherwise well and you and you mentioned herbert rust reanimator that's like such a big story that feels like it fits his aesthetic, but it's also one of those stories that like I could see it be written by a totally different horror writer because I think oh, it's yeah. just got it's got a different scope to it. Oh, and what are we doing? That that story was turned into a movie that's like an absolute cult classic. Yeah, it's a cult like, classic, it's like, but it's, it's also so... not a critically acclaimed no, movie. And <laughs> no, they, they took some liberties. It is not like a very good it's not translation really the story, story. Yeah. No. But I will say, like, if you're into zombies, you can thank Lovecraft for that because between um, you know, Night of the Living Dead introducing like the the concept of like Walking Dead and Reanimator the story. Uh, that's like those those two things are like what created our modern idea of zombies. So eventually, I'm sure we'll do a zombies episode so we can get into Reanimator. But it's you know just FYI. And for the love of God, I know we're pretty much past the influences, but I have to talk about Laird Baron. For oh a God, yeah. Because eventually we're just gonna have being, to do a fucking Laird Baron episode too. We will, because he's and being heralded. Nick's gonna is, have to read something by Laird Baron. I did. I made him read one thing because he's making me a Laird Baron tattoo. Oh, cool, <laughs> awesome! What'd you read? He's, he, uh, Blackwood's uh, daughter. Blackwood's baby. Yeah, Blackwood's oh, okay. baby. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I was th- I was gonna say uh, daughter. I was thinking of the black coat. A Black Coat's Daughter, which is a great movie that everyone should watch and has yeah, nothing to do daughter. with anything of this. I just said that's a good daughter. That's a good movie. <laughs> that's a good daughter. And a good daughter. <laughs> of all the daughter. daughters I know, that's my favorite. <laughs> but Laird Baron is being heralded as the modern-day HP Lovecraft, and you can really see why. If you get into Lovecraft, or even if you if you are very put off by Lovecraft's writing style and like need a transition to get into that type of world, I would very highly recommend Laird Baring's The Croning, uh, which will kind of give you an idea of that type of universe with like elder gods and evil and everything. 
and it will it's actually a very good more digestible transition into the world of hp lovecraft i first discovered layered baron because i was like actively looking for things that were lovecraft influenced and that was a name that kept coming up layered baron so i got his short story book the beautiful thing that awaits us all and the thing about lovecraft and it's something that works against him and works for him at the same time is that all of his characters, like his human characters, his protagonist, are super one-dimensional. They're mm. all um, academics, middle-aged men from somewhere in New England. Uh, so they're, they're, it's basically all the same character. There's not a lot going on for them. I mean, it works in the sense that all of his stories are about how we don't matter as a species. So, of course, the protagonist doesn't matter. And it kind of like puts you in that you know, that frame of mind, it's very much like you put yourself into the narrator's right. position. They're all now, Keanu Reeves. They're all just a, a blank husk yeah. for you to yeah. project yourself into. Now, Laird Baron writes wonderfully, wonderfully crafted characters that are just original and really full of life and captivating. And so when you hear about them, you know, experiencing blatant madness and horror, it kind of sucks because you actually yeah. like these characters. So like I finished I tore through the beautiful thing thing the I tore through the beautiful thing that awaits us all and I had to like take like a week just to process my emotions from it because I felt like legitimately depressed after reading that book and just fucking hopeless and nihilistic, but it was so good <laughs> at the same time and that's I think that's just yeah, a testament to how so good he is. It. Is like he's able to like conjure those feelings in you. Yeah. So if no, we're, he's yeah. he's really worth a read. If we're talking different ways in a, a good training wheels way to get into Lovecraft outside of his own stuff, another one would be uh, Shogoth's Old Peculiar, which is a short story by Neil Gaiman. Because it's like, imagine the guy we just explained being Lovecraft if he had a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of who Neil Gaiman is. Like he plays with the same inputs. So. That, that's why I say it's like a training wheels way. Like, it's not as dark or bleak, but he's written a few stories like Shogas Old Peculiar where it's the same themes um, in a little more of a playful way that might get you intrigued. And then you might want to dig a little deeper uh, from there. And one thing that I'm interested to start reading, because it clearly has Lovecraftian influences, is Annihilation, which I know, Theo, we didn't even talk about, but you just watched. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a lot of themes in it as far as... Uh, the other and and sort of transformation of life on earth from an alien sort of uh invader that and things that are unexplained because they're beyond our knowledge that are in that movie that just came out with natalie portman but i recently got the whole trilogy of books so i want to read that because it's another one where you get that whiff of lovecraft and you're like i gotta explore this to see what road it goes down all right well i think we finally did uh, Lovecraft some justice? Not, not, not we, we, we can never do him full justice, but I feel like this is a pretty good start. Yeah, yeah I think two hours is, is a good way <laughs> to get at, people into it. At the very least, you, now you know who he is and why we keep talking about him. Yeah. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough. If you like this show at all, you'll probably like Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would say there's a reason why he comes up a lot. We Just in this episode alone, I think we've already touched on things that we talked about. One thing that we honestly didn't even get into, but has a tie, is Hollow Earth Theory, 
There's definitely yep. pieces of that, which we had a whole yeah. episode on. So I would almost suggest if you just listen to this and you have any interest in re-listening to some things, go back and listen to some select episodes from ours. Maybe we'll even put something on the website, some kind of curated like uh, Lovecraft reference uh, playlist mm-hmm. or something. And then it's like if you listen yeah. to these like six episodes of AOE, you'll get a better sense of who Lovecraft was. So uh thanks for listening this was a lot of fun and uh yeah i enjoyed this I, I love all the different pieces of the story that we got from each of us so yeah all right good work team cool yeah all right let's we'll be back in two weeks maybe <laughs> <laughs> you never really know do you in our, like to keep you on your feet we'll be back in two weeks in our ongoing series of horror authors next featuring beverly cleary <laughs> I would be so down for that. <laughs> I'll talk about Ramona. I don't give a shit. <laughs> did she write? Bye, did everyone. she write Benicular or was that somebody else? No, that was somebody else. Beverly Cleary did Ramona Quimby, and I think she did Super Fudge. Okay, well, let's find out who wrote Benicular and talk about that because I want to talk about vampire bunnies. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.